So you probably guessed it already. We're here today to, to talk about mothers. Uh, we're, we're actually going to honor Mother's Day for what it was intended to be. And so we're going to talk right now from the Word about what the Bible says about moms. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. God, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us, for the truth that you've given us in Christ. And by the power of your Spirit, we thank you for the worship that we've had here today, the, the, the dedications of our children, as well as being played for by Madeline and then lifting our voices to you, God. Hopefully we're set up now to turn to your Word. And so as we focus on the moms around us, would you give us wisdom? May we understand your Word rightly. More than anything, may they walk out of here encouraged today and feeling the support that is due them from us as their church body. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, imagine a, a mom who remained nonpartisan during a brutal civil war in her country so that she could provide physical strength and tangible <clears throat> relief to the soldiers on both sides of the conflict. And imagine this same mom who also organized community work among women in her town so that health and sanitary conditions would be better for all, especially the poor. Imagine a mom who spent 25 years teaching Sunday school to her children and to the children in her church so that the next generation of Christians could be raised up. Imagine a mom who had a dream to go to college herself but wasn't able to due to circumstances and economics beyond her control, but made sure that her children, both male and female alike, got to college so that they would not miss what she missed. And imagine a mom who did all of this, troop support, community work, Sunday school, college preparation, who had 12 children of her own and a husband who worked all day and eight of her children who would never see adulthood because they died of disease or death. This woman's name was Anne Marie Jarvis. Look up here on the screen. She lived in Taylor County, West Virginia during the mid to late 1800s and she was the original mother who sparked this day that we celebrate every second Sunday in May known as <clears throat> Mother's Day. It was actually her daughter, Anne Jarvis, who about 10 years after her mother's death, started thinking, you know, there needs to be a day that we set aside and celebrate just for moms. And she had actually heard her mom say more than one time in her life, you know what, we need a day called Mother's Day because we deserve it. And so a few years after her mother's death, she began lobbying Congress and garnishing national support and writing hundreds of letters. And on May 8, 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a congressional resolution making Mother's Day a national holiday. And all I can say is what a holiday as it is, a day that we set aside to recognize and honor the moms among us who wield such profound influence in our lives. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in our country, there's a lot of moms. Currently in the United States, there's over 82 million moms. And of these 82 million moms, their loved ones today will send over 150 million Mother's Day cards, and we're going to keep in business the 23,000 florists that our, nation's that our nation has. It has become quite a holiday, Mother's Day, a day that we set aside to honor our moms. And so what I want to do today is focus on the role that a mom has in positively marking a child. I've done God's a couple dozen Mother's Day messages over the years, but I want to do something a little bit unique today. And I don't want to just talk about moms in general. I want to talk to moms here this morning. 
And so if you're a mother or if you have a mother in your life, and all of us have had mothers in our lives, then certainly you're going to want to tune in to what we talk about today because I want to speak directly to the moms among us. And to do this, I want to share with you three central biblical ideas, three things that the Bible tells us about human beings and the life-altering role that mothers can and should play. And I'll let you know right now that I'm going to be beginning at a place that's going to seem kind of unorthodox, if not unusual, for you. In other words, when you hear the first point in just a minute right now, you're going to think, you're kidding me, Jamie. I mean, that's the first thing that you want to say to mothers about Mother's Day? And just bear with me, because as you're going to see, we need to start in an unusual place if we're ever going to understand the wonderful role that mothers play in the lives of their children. So here's the first point. You ready for it? And that is that every child born into this fallen world struggles with an inadequate view of God, self, and others. It's true that every child born into this world, we'll see how this plays out into moms in a few minutes here, every child born in this fallen world struggles with an adequate view of God, self, and others. In other words, we are born with holes in our souls. Have you noticed that? And it's a hole that leaves us lacking and wanting in our understanding and experience of what this world is all about of who God is and our relationship with others and who we are as fallen people made in the image of God. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at how the Bible communicates this to us in its usual candid and straightforward fashion. We're going to look at some hard-hitting passages here today that we need to kind of put together to understand this idea of, of the state that each of us are born into. Look at Job 14, verse 1. Job 14, verse 1. It says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. In other words, 80 years is not long compared to eternity, saying we're short-lived. And of these 80 years, there's a lot that leads to confusion and heartache. It's interesting, that word turmoil here is the Hebrew word rogez, and it literally means that which is not calm, tumultuous, it carries with it, try to picture this, the idea of a pot that is being stored, stirred, where the water is no longer calm, it's now being stirred and it's swirling and mixing, and as it gets stirred even more, it's even starting to spill over the side. Can you picture it? And that's what it's saying. Life is like this sometimes. It's, it's, it's tumultuous. It's filled with turmoil. And don't miss that Job is making a universal statement here. He's saying, man who is born of woman... In other words, everyone, all people born into this world experience this stirring of the pot. Have you ever had your life stirred like that? That's what the Bible says happens in this fallen world. Now, hanging on to that, notice that one of the ramifications and even causes of this stirred life that we all experience is told us to, to us by Jeremiah 10, verse 14. Look at what Jeremiah says. It says, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Could he get much more straightforward than that? Everybody is stupid, and every man is stupid and devoid of knowledge. I mean, that's actually what the Bible says here. I mean, the New International Version tries to soften the blow a little bit when it says that every man is senseless and without knowledge. But either way, simply notice that it's simply filling in the gaps of Job 14.1 by telling us that one of the reasons that life becomes like a stirred pot is that every person, again, a universal statement, lacks knowledge from birth and doesn't get what this world is about, why we're here, and what we're supposed to do. In other words, every child has what one author calls a, a inadequ an inadequate sense of self 
let alone a sense of who God is and how to truly connect with others around us. And so in summary fashion, I love how 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says this to us. Look up here on the screen. It says that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I mean, what a realistic statement, folks. Looking into a mirror in which the reflection is not all that clear, which is cracked and blurred, it's saying that this is the state of humanity in a fallen world. This is our knowledge on best days. On our best days, it's saying it's partial knowledge. Do you understand? Now we see through a glass dimly, but then in heaven we're going to know fully. And so when it comes to God and others, even ourselves, it's partial and hence inadequate knowledge that you and I have in this world. Someday we're going to know fully, but not now. Not as finite beings living in a sin-filled world that is not our ultimate home. And so add all this up, folks. The pot is stirred. Knowledge is lacking for all human beings And as a result of this, tell me if this isn't true. And that is that the average human being is found very early on in his or her life in a perpetual state of insecurity and doubt then when it comes to who we really are and where joy and purpose are to be found. It's true. It's what much of childhood is about. Some of you remember it. Some of you are still living it. But insecurity about your looks, self-doubt about your abilities, fears concerning what lies ahead, lots of confusion about how to treat others around you, especially when you're threatened by them, and lots of wonderment on how to really know and please God, whom your hearts tell you that is real and that he wants more than you're currently giving to him. I mean, all kids are this way. It's kind of sewn into the fabric of this world. And even worse, many adults enter into adulthood with this insecurity in their souls. I love the funny story about the boy who was being tucked into bed one night by his mother. And there was a thunderstorm raging outside, and as she kissed him goodnight, he said, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? And the mother kind of smiled at him and gave him another hug and said, I can't, dear. I have to sleep with your daddy. To which the boy said, The big sissy. (laughs) every child and I mean everyone is born into this world with an inadequate sense of who God is who they are and and, and even who others are it's just part and parcel of, of the lack of knowledge of being a child and if we're not careful it can follow us into adulthood as well right and this is where moms come in And we're going to talk about fathers in June. But moms, I want you to see today, play a very unique and special role in helping their children deal with the inherent inadequacy of experiential knowledge. And so here's the second thing, moms, that the Bible tells us here about the roles that mothers can and should play in the lives of those closest to them. And it's why we honor you on a day like this. And that is that God has given mothers the role of instilling security, safety, and knowledge about God into their children. Ladies, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this today. And that is that God has given you as mothers the role of instilling security, safety, and knowledge about God into your children and to those around you. You know, there's a wonderful chapter tucked away in the Old Testament that does nothing but pine the virtues of a godly and good woman. Many of you know the chapter. It's Proverbs chapter 31. 
And toward the tail end of this chapter, it talks about a mother's relationship to her entire household, and it says something very profound and encouraging about the role of a mother, quite frankly, something very unique. Look at verse 26 of Proverbs 31. It says, she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. I want you to focus on that little phrase, teaching of kindness, here. This is a very interesting and powerful set of descriptive words. You see, in the original Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, it's using two very common Hebrew words to make up this phrase. First is the Hebrew word Torah, which literally means law or instruction about God, an instruction that comes from God. And then it's using the Hebrew word kesed, which is the Old Testament word for grace, literally meaning loving kindness. And these two words, you need to know, appear all the time separately in the Old Testament, very naturally so. Because obviously the Old Testament is talking to us about law and instructions about God and who He is. And then the Old Testament as well talks about the fact that God is loving and kind and gracious to us at the same time. So Torah and Kesed appear all the time in the Old Testament. Torah appears about 220 times, and Kesed, loving kindness, appears about 253 times. It's all over the Old Testament, God's truth and then God's love and grace. But ironically, out of 39 books in the Old Testament that takes up hundreds of pages, these two words virtually never appear together in the same verse. Isn't that interesting? They virtually never appear together, Torah and grace, in the same sentence except in two cases, once in 1 Chronicles 35 in describing the good king Josiah and his loving kindness that became recorded in the book of the law, which is simply just a descriptive phrase of what happened, and then here in Proverbs 31, linked together in a unique way, not even found in the passage describing Josiah, as it describes here the role a mother plays in the life of her family. So don't miss what happens when it's one of the only times that the Old Testament links together this idea of of God's instruction about God and His loving kindness. It does so for a mom. And it's saying that a mother provides a very unique combination of instruction and kindness, instruction about who God is, who a child is, who others are, mixed in with a grace befitting of a woman made in the image of Almighty God, a grace that knows how to view and treat others, a grace that knows how to love God and walk with Him. Please see, folks, it's the teaching of kindness. Don't miss this. Not just teaching about kindness. I mean, we're tempted to see it that way. You're tempted to say, yeah, 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 a woman teaches a child how to be kind. That's not what it's just getting at here. No, it's the teaching of kindness, a woman providing wisdom on multiple levels as the Old Testament provides. A wisdom in the form of a grace-filled experiential knowledge on how to understand oneself, fallen and sinful but made in God's image, as well as understand one's special gifts from God, how to love others and pour into them, and even how to know, love, and follow God. It's Torah and Kesed brought together in a way not seen in the Old Testament before, a teaching about who God is and what is right, done in a grace-filled, grace-filled uniquely feminine way. That's the mark of a mother. A mark that goes way beyond this usual mothers are supposed to nurture and men are supposed to protect and provide fashion. I mean, it adds a richness, ladies, to your role in the lives of children that's seen nowhere else. 
And this is truly the mark that a mother can leave on a child as you help a child develop a whole life view of God, others, and self. Helping a child realize that they're made in the image of God, complete with special gifts from God himself. Helping a child realize, however, that sin has entered into their lives and is going to tempt them to be radically self-centered at key points in their lives. Helping a child realize what redemption is all about, what forgiveness in Christ and submitting to him is about. And then what it means even to live life on purpose in such a way that you truly walk with God and love others and make a dent in this world. Don't miss it, ladies. It's a mark that directly deals with the insecurity and the doubt that we just looked at that comes from being born into this fallen world. Not taking it away, mind you, but giving a child enough truth and affirmation that he or she clearly understands how to live and get by in this fallen world. It's a mark that makes a difference. It's the mark of a mom in God's economy. Look up here on the screen. Ben Carson is one of the foremost neurosurgeons alive today. I mean, he's experienced a level of success and acclaim that, that most people never will. He's most known for his work on the separation of conjoined twins. He's performed numerous complicated and delicate operations, successfully giving conjoined twins separate lives. Ben's a graduate of Yale University and the University of Michigan Medical School. He was the youngest head of pediatric surgery in the nation at Johns Hopkins University at the age of 33. He's been awarded over 20 honorary doctorate degrees, and he's even established his own scholarship fund to help other young kids get a head start on college. And Carson is also a strong and outspoken Christian. He regularly makes known his views on creationism over evolution. He has been appointed to the President's Council on Bioethics. He has authored three books in which he talks unashamedly about how hard work and faith in God have been his keys to success. And yet, in the midst of all of this, he also credits something else, or should I say someone else, and you guessed it, he credits his mom. Aside from his faith in Christ, Carson says that the number one influence on his success and his character today has been his mother. In fact, look up here on the screen and listen to what he says in his own words. This is profound stuff. He says she was one of 24 children, got married at the age of 13, found out that her husband was a bigamist, she had only a third grade education, and the thing about my mother is that she never adopted a victim's mentality. She prayed. She asked God to give her wisdom because my brother and I were terrible students. In fact, the story behind that is that when Ben was in fifth grade, he was ranked as the worst student in his class by his fifth grade teacher, the absolute worst. And it was at this point that his mother had had enough. She came one day home from work where she was cleaning houses, and she turned off the TV. And Ben kind of freaked out and said, what are you doing? And she said, no more TV for you. What you're going to do, in addition to all of your schoolwork, is that you're going to go to the library at the beginning of the week. You're going to pick a book, a relatively long book. You're going to read it all week. And on Friday, you're going to write a book report on it and hand it in to me, in addition to all of your schoolwork. And obviously, he didn't like that. But she was mom. She was boss. And so that's what he did. And what he didn't know at that time, now get this, is that his mother herself could not read. That his mother, who only had a third grade education, had never learned to read. And so she was asking him to write a book report that he didn't end to her that she couldn't read herself. Now I would submit to you guys that that is creative wisdom. Amen? 
I mean, that's something that only a mom would think of. Us guys are way too dumb to think of something like that, right? And what a creative thing that she did because Ben Carson writes that that was the turning point of his academic career. I mean, it was from this that Carson grew to love things of the mind and he began to apply himself to the point that just in a year and a half, he went from the bottom of the class to the top. In fact, listen to what he says in his own words from a PBS interview a few years back. He says, we were desperately poor, never had enough money to do anything, but between the covers of those pages of the book I read, books I read, I could go anywhere in the world, be anything, and do anything. He says, you know, my imagination began to run wild. I began reading about research chemists, and I could see myself in a laboratory pouring things from test tubes, the beakers, and seeing the foam rising. He says, I began to get excited and began to visualize myself in intellectual capacities. And you know, within the space of a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. And he says, one of the interesting things is, is that when I thought I was stupid, I conducted myself like a stupid person, and therefore I achieved like a stupid person. But when I thought I was smart, I began to conduct myself accordingly, and I began to achieve accordingly. Don't miss this, folks. Lots of faith. A no-victim attitude, loads of prayer, ample discipline, all mixed together in a creative, wise way. That's the teaching of kindness. It's Torah and grace. It's the kind of mother that Ben Carson had. And it was enough. It was exactly what he needed. The teaching of kindness is a powerful influence that moms can have on their children that they spend so much time with. I love how Tony Campolo's wife, Peggy, a full-time stay-at-home mom, would answer the question when she was younger of, what is it that you do? Look up here on the screen. This is great. This is how she would respond. She would say, and I quote, I'm socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And then she would look at the person who answered the question and say, and what is it that you do? <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, women don't ever underestimate the awesome, powerful, life-giving role that you play in the physical, relational, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual life of your child. I mean, their souls long to be filled with love and faith and wisdom, all packaged together with loads of relationality that only you can uniquely provide. We're going to talk about fathers next month, but it's the mother's mark we're looking at now, and it truly has the power to forge an identity in a child that prepares him or her for victorious battle in this fallen world. Now, you know, as I was sitting in my home office this week and going over this message and, and, and putting the final touches on it, I thought, you know, at this point in our talk, I, I know what some of you are thinking. I, I know what you're thinking in your minds and hearts because you think like me. You're thinking, but Jamie, I don't always do that great as a mother. I mean, I'm no Ann Jarvis, and I'm no Dr. Ben Carson's mother. I get depressed and discouraged. I lose it regularly. I'm not that intentional sometimes, or sometimes I'm way too intentional, and I mess things up. I have baggage, lots of it, that leaks into my kids' lives in ways that I'm ashamed of. So what do I do about all that? And believe it or not, ladies, God knows all of this, and he realizes all of these things. He does. He knows that you struggle with insecurity and doubt yourself. 
He knows that you might not have had the teaching of wisdom that we just looked at, looked at, maybe in your own family of origin, or if you did, maybe it was somewhat inadequate. And what you need to know is that he's made provision for this. And so here's the third and final encouraging thing that the Bible says to mothers who are looking to leave a positive mark on their kids struggling with their own identity over the years. And that is that the best way to leave a positive mark on your child is to receive one yourself from God. It's true. The best way to leave a positive mark on your child is to receive one yourself from Almighty God. You know, what most people don't realize is that there are lots of really messed up people in the Bible. And get this, there are even lots of really messed up people in the Bible whom God used to write the Bible. Did you know that? And one of the guys' name was a guy by the name of Timothy. Timothy was raised in a home where his father was an unbelieving Greek Gentile, while his mother was a professing Jew. And we have no idea how these two, guys, these two people got married, or for whatever reason they did, but this Jewish gal married this unbelieving man. And this might explain partially why the picture is painted of Timothy in the Bible as one who struggled with what we might call some inferiority problems. He said on two occasions to be a guy who struggled with fear and timidity. We get the picture of a man who cared way too much what others thought of him, and this caused him to shy away from things like conflict. As well, Paul, Timothy's longtime mentor, suggests, to Tim suggests about Timothy that he could even get defensive at times. He warns him in one of his letters to not be quarrelsome or argumentative, and this would make sense from what we know of people who struggle with insecurity and self-doubt, that they can get defensive and reactionary at times, or at least so I'm told. And we know that Timothy also suffered from stomach problems. And again, from what we know of people who had higher levels of anxiety in their lives, they would tend to get stomach problems from that, right? So add it all up, folks. You got this fearful, timid, sometimes defensive, roll-aids-popping guy named Timothy who, believe it or not, and I get this, would go on to have an unusually profound impact in establishing the first set of Christian churches in the Middle East. I mean, check this out. This guy would go on to co-write no less than six New Testament letters along with the Apostle Paul. He would then be sent by Paul to be the first line of defense to starting up multiple churches in order to encourage them and solve problems. He would then become so valuable to Paul that Paul would use phrases like this in describing him. He'd say, he's my fellow worker, my true child in the faith, my son whom I love. In fact, Paul would eventually pay him the greatest compliment that he could when he described Timothy as one who proved himself well, who was faithful and trustworthy to the end. And so don't miss the duality going on in this guy's life. I mean, in one sense, he's fearful and timid and defensive and kind of messed up from his background. And in another sense, he's being used by God in a way that the majority of us would salivate after. And you got to ask the question, how? I mean, how does a guy who chronically struggled with this type of inferiority complex go on to be wildly successful on a relational and spiritual level? And the answer goes back to what we've been looking at this morning. And that is to a degree, to a great degree, it was Timothy's mother this pretty messed up herself, marrying a pagan man, mother, who despite all of her issues and mistakes, had one thing going for her that made all the difference. Are you interested in what that one thing might have been? 
Look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. This is so life-giving. Our last verse today we're going to look at, Paul tells us the one thing that this woman had going for her that she transferred to her son that allowed him to become the man that he did. Paul says this, 2 Timothy 1, 5. He says, For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. And we say, whoa. I mean, what is it that allowed Timothy to be used so mightily by God, even in the midst of all of his struggles? Don't miss this. It was a sincere faith. A sincere faith. That word sincere here, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, literally means an undissembled faith. The kind of faith that, though not perfect, is whole in nature in the sense that it's not fake. It's not parceled out so that you see one aspect of it here and then shut it down and see another aspect of it here. No, it's the kind of faith in which what you see is what you get, and it's the kind of faith that sincerely wants to follow Christ and trust Him in this world. And so to put it in our language today, it's not the kind of faith that is kind of a casual Sunday-only kind of faith that's playing games. No, this befits a person who longs to depend on God in increasingly life-giving ways. It's a faith that trusts God in and through it all, that seeks to find, as we're going to talk about next week, one's sufficiency in Him. That's a sincere faith. And it was this kind of faith that allowed Timothy to be such a mess in so many ways, but then also to be used by God in the process, and even to find joy and satisfaction as a result. And so don't miss that Timothy received this sincere faith from whom? from his mother and from his grandmother. In other words, Timothy's mother truly and deeply trusted God with everything in her. She wanted to know God and love him more than anything else in her life. She had a sincere faith. And the point is, ladies, is that this faith was enough. It was enough to take her through the hills and the valleys of her very difficult journey. And she passed this faith on to her son, and this was enough as well. And so Eunice, Timothy's mother, was marked by God. And in being marked by God in the midst of all the things, the other things that were in play, like a spiritually mixed marriage and a son who struggled with his own identity issues and a, and a culture back then that laughed at people who followed Jesus, in the midst of all of this, being marked by God, was what made the difference, and it was enough. And the point is clear then for all of us here today, and especially for our moms, and that is that the best way to leave a positive mark on your child is to receive one yourself from Almighty God. I mean, yes, provide safety and security. It's our role as parents. And yes, strive to be a mother who practices this teaching of kindness to your children But you know, the reality is, let's just face it, you're going to mess that up at times. We all do. I'm a pastor, for crying out loud, and I mess things up every day. And so the reality is, is that all of us are still fallen. All of us still lead pretty messed up lives, even though we look so good on Sunday. And so what's our ace in the hole? What is the thing that we rely on more than anything else? It's our trust and our faith, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as we trust him with everything in us, with this sincere, authentic faith, 
then God's going to enter into the process and run interference in only the way that he can. He's going to mark you, ladies. And in so doing, you'll leave a positive mark on those around you, especially the children that you so very much love. And so here's the deal. Mothers, most likely today, you're going to get some type of kudos and maybe even a gift. I mean, at the very least today, you've gotten a kudos and a recognition from your church, but most likely you're probably going to get a card, maybe some candy, some flowers, who knows, maybe even something bigger. This is America for crying out loud. But the reality is you're going to get affirmed and appreciated today, and my encouragement to you is to enjoy it because tomorrow is not Mother's Day. Amen? I used to joke in the early days, you know, when I was young and stupid, I used to say, you know, every day is Mother's Day in my house. And then my wife stopped laughing at that. And so I figured let's just honor the one day that uh, we have for our mothers. And it's a great day that it is. And as you receive all of this today, please recognize that the greatest gift that you can give to those around you is the gift of a mark from God, a mark of love. A mark of wisdom, a mark of relational safety and security, and most importantly, a mark of faith. Faith in the only Savior of our souls, Jesus himself. And when you feel that you have no mark to give, ladies, allow this to drive you to God your Father and to Jesus your friend, realizing that he can and will mark you as you cry out to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, we can set aside a day like this and to honor and highlight the mothers among us, whether they be the mothers in our lives that may be, like my mother is, 2,200 miles away today, or mothers right here in our congregation that we want to uplift and honor. I just thank you, God, we can do that today. And Lord, I thank you that your word comes along and and very clearly and in a life-giving and yet challenging way tells us what motherhood is really about. So Father, may we never forget that we have many, many people around us, many of them children, some of them even adults, that still struggle with a very inadequate view of who you are, who we are, and who others are. And uh, Father, I pray that we'd recognize that, that, that hole in our soul that, that we have as humanity. I pray, Lord, too, that mothers would recognize the very unique contribution and role that they play in helping children, and by extension even many of us as adults, know who God is and what, he, what you are about and how we can know you and follow you and truly love others and make a dent in this world. I pray, Lord, that you'd use the women uniquely in our church here in that teaching of kindness role that Torah and Kesed brought together. And Father, lastly, I want to pray for the mothers here today that might be struggling in their own identity because we're all human, and that, Father, you would just draw very close to them and, and mark them in a unique way. And may they have a sincere faith and a trust in you that will carry them the distance. And Lord, before we close, I want to pray for a couple of women here too today, or a couple types of women here today that we want to also be very mindful of. And Lord, I first want to pray for women who want to be mothers but have not been able to yet. And God, I know that there are women here in whom Mother's Day is very, very painful for them. And so Lord, we want to remember them in our prayers. We pray that your presence and your goodness would be poured out upon them, that you would draw very close to them and comfort them in the distress that they have right now in their lives, and give them hope. And Lord, would you grace them too with some children? We would not be shy to pray that. Would you grace them in that way? And Father, we lastly want to pray for some women here who have lost their children. God, we know that that's part of living in a fallen world, but Lord, it doesn't make it any easier at all. The fact that there are some whose children have preceded them 
and passing on and going to you. And Lord, we pray that you give a real comfort to them here today too. and Remind them of your love and your grace upon their lives. So Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the mothers around us. We thank you for our church and all that you're doing in and through this place. And we pray that we would continue to be faithful and focused on you. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.